Ladies and gentlemen, do welcome to the next episode of my Save Bet show, and it gives me a great pleasure. It's also an honor to have a friend of mine, and also he happens to be the founder and CEO of YieldSec, Mr. Esmal Valley, on the show today. Welcome. Martin, welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. Our pleasure, and let me delve right into it as a bit of a theme because, uh, well, Ismail's a proper Brit. I'm a fake Brit in the sense that I carry a British passport. And I've never studied where Ismail studied, but I will start there. Oxford, you yes. majored in law. I happen to be, well, I used to be a lawyer myself. I don't really practice law anymore. But you majored in law at one of the Oxford's constituent colleges, actually, Brace Nose. So yes. how did the Oxbridge degree and the time you spent at one of the world's oldest and most prestigious, if I may put it that way, universities, which is still somewhat shrouded in the mystery of its medieval tradition. How did that mold your, at that point, future career? Hi. Thank you, Martin, for the question, first of all. <laughs> Look, Oxford is a great institution, and when I was younger, I had no hopes or illusions about going somewhere like that. <clears throat> so I'd... And I'll say this openly now. I used to say this to very few people. I applied to Oxford because of, and to Brasenose in particular because it was the only college and university I'd heard of. So when it came time to kind of apply for universities and they asked me where I wanted to go, I didn't really know any universities apart from Oxford. <laughs> so I applied to Oxford and I applied to Brasenose because it had been in the Sun newspaper, which obviously was, I'm working class, that's a newspaper the family read. Uh, it was written up as the interests of British justice would be better served if there were fewer judges from Brasenose College, Oxford. And that was a quote by Kelvin McKenzie, the ex-editor of the Sun, who was pretty much a hated figure in British society. So I thought if he's saying that there should be fewer judges from there, it's probably a good thing that you should study there. So I'd applied to Brasenose. I sat my entrance exam and got a very high mark. Um, my school and college and stuff had basically said, you won't get into university. You're not the right kind of character. And I was really encouraged that <clears throat> despite being mixed race and stuff, Oxford really embraced me. They let me in. They gave me a place at Brasenose and offered me any other college I wanted as well. But I feel very privileged to have studied that. It really it made my <clears throat> kind of career and a lot of my life as well, studying that was. So it's... That kind of now, after Harry Potter and stuff, you could say it's kind of like Hogwarts. It's that kind of institution, but it's, it was a real privilege studying there. I got my first degree and my master's there as well. I didn't qualify professionally, uh, and I was told pretty much in my first term that you're not the kind of character that's going to make a professional lawyer, either a barrister or a solicitor. You believe in a strict form of justice and a very clear view of black and white, and that's not the case when you, start, when you qualify professionally and start practicing uh, for a profession. So they made it quite clear to me that no issue other than that. It's basically your idea of what justice should be is very strict compared to other people. And you don't like compromising. So they said that guys like you make other lawyers much better because you constantly want to push the point of this isn't how things should work. And that's probably 25, 30 years later, that's probably where it's ended up with kind of creating Gilsec and stuff. I had a very clear view of law is black and white. You need to get to a sense of what's legal and what's not. And there shouldn't be any acceptance of ideas like grey market operations and stuff. We should have a very clear view of regulated markets produce legal operators. They're licensed, tax-paying and contributing to our commerce and our community. And everybody else is basically stealing from those ecosystems. Absolutely. There clearly is a theme to not only your career, but your whole life. Proven people wrong. And we'll come on to that. 
Okay. The other point I was going to make is that you only ever having heard about Oxford, I suspect that would have made a lot of people at Cambridge upset, but I shall digress and move on to... Let me just say on the Cambridge thing, I also got accepted there. <laughs> so I did you actually... You got accepted there even without ever having heard about it. That's even uh, more impressive, uh, ladies and gentlemen. As well, an Oxbridge graduate against his own will. But they only let me in for English at Oxford, at, at Cambridge, whereas Oxford let me in for law. So I didn't want to do English. I wanted to do law. Yeah, well, as far as I'm concerned, well, being a foreigner, if I may say so, your English is absolutely perfect and creates, hopefully, a very good segue into the next topic. Because another feature we've got in common is that, to a large extent, we happen to be globe trotters. So you've worked in numerous jurisdictions around the world. So the question I've got sticking to the previous theme is that do you believe in particular, because I don't have that, I'm just British on paper and uh, the British accent has never properly rubbed off on me, but especially with your mellifluous British accent, does being British have any advantage, any advantages rather when you're traveling the world? How, how do folks out there perceive you proper Brits these days? I think that's an interesting one. I think it's, it's uh, two sides of the same coin. I think sometimes we're perceived in a, in a good way. And again, I'm British, but to look at me, nobody would think I was British. So I color of my skin, shape of my eyes. Oh, these days, these days. <laughs> Nobody's assuming that I'm British kind of straight off the bat. So basically the next question that will come is, where are your parents from? What's your racial heritage? So to put this one to rest, I'm half Dutch on my mother's side and on my father's side, Malawian, so Indian African. So it's a it's a broad mix, and it kind of leads to a lot of people thinking, is he Italian, is he Israeli, is he this, is he that? <clears throat> Last thing that people think of is English. They obviously hear the accent, and then they assume, okay, the guy's a Brit. Um, the accent's kind of stood me in good stead over the years. I think it comes across as it has that perception of being slightly more educated, I guess, but there's not, there's not that to it. I was lucky to be educated at Oxford, obviously. But... <clears throat> Definitely the globetrotter side of it, I've always gone where the business needed me the most, whether that was in employed roles for Labrooks, um, Paradise Poker, Poker Stars, and then through consulting career. And then with Yieldsec, I've taken myself wherever the business needed me. Right now, I'm based in Mexico. So that's much cheaper for us. We run a center of excellence here with our data analysts, and also it's good for, we're just about to go into our investment rounds, and it's good for investors to see that we run the business on the most lean fashion possible to make sure that it's the right thing for the clients, the right things for the team, and the right thing for us as a business going forward. And kind of Netherlands, Brecken, of the avail, but I suspect... Lucky uh, to Netherlands, yeah. <laughs> our, our audience uh, is bound to be predominantly English-speaking, so I will behave yet again and digress. And... Coming on to the industry and the roles and positions you have held within the industry prior to launching Yieldsec. That's quite a long list, both managerial and consulting, ranging from, and that's the one for obvious reasons, very close to my heart, ranging from the head of development for Ludbrokes to chief marketing officer for the likes of Paradise Poker and Sporting Bed. So how long have you actually been in the industry and how much has 
the gambling industry, well, with particular focus on the online gambling industry, how much has it changed throughout your tenure? So that's a great question. I think, look, it's, it's, I've, this is my 21st year now. It's massively changed over that time. I joined Labrooks off the back of having left Oxford, 98, 97, 98, and I joined Solomons with Barney. So I was their first internet analyst, basically because when they asked us the question on training in New York, who has an, an email account, I put my hand up and I was told, you're the internet guy. <laughs> and that was kind of as simple as it was. I wrote reports based on online media, telco, and internet companies. And one of the, the biggest reports I wrote in terms of popularity was a report about what would make money online. <clears throat> so I said that rather than looking at seeing the internet as something completely new, it's just another distribution channel. And you need to look at it as one of the most cost-effective distribution channels we have ever come up with as human beings with any form of economic activity. I'd written that and said it would be gambling and pornography. It would be two businesses that benefited from anonymity, and they'd be two things that we should look at. It got me suspended for a week uh, for my job and then rehired at double my salary on Friday <laughs> uh, because it had been such a requested report and Playboy, Hustler, uh, tons of gambling companies were talking to the bank now. Um, I took an offer from Labrooks, moved back to the UK, um, started their internet division uh, with a very small core team of techs and strategy people. Um, that build and going through everything from the first build of the sports book, the race book, casino, poker, games. We even built kind of a product called Balls, which was an every minute numbers game to rival the lottery. It was an intensely creative time, and the board backed us in terms of just get Labrooks on the map kind of thing in the UK. What I'd say from that time was the retail estate, and that was three and a half thousand shops for Labrooks in those days. They looked at it and went, this internet thing will disappear. It's going to be a flash in the pan and it will disappear in the next couple of years. I was utterly convinced it wouldn't. I was utterly convinced that this was a low-cost distribution model. It was much better than owning retail property at leasehold or freehold values. And this was the way forward. I then took, I took, did two, nearly three years at Labrooks. Um, then got to a point where I kind of thought, okay, I want to specialize in an area that I'd seen at Labrooks. We'd come up with a thing called Poker Million, which was a poker tournament for a million dollars. I then joined the world's first online poker company, Paradise Poker, <clears throat> who had got to the point where they'd launched in 99, were now struggling in 2002 and 2003. They had a, had a view that they needed to get back to number one position, and they needed somebody who was good with creative ideas and promotions. I found my niche there. That that's really what set up my marketing work. I really focused on this is how you bring customers. You, make, you let them play for free. You let them adjust to whatever they want to do in their own time. And you make sure that they're not forced into playing any game or forced <clears throat> into opening accounts for money's worth kind of thing. Uh, so the experience at Paradise Poker, we turned that business around, got them back to number one, sold the business in 2005 for $500 million pre-Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act. When the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act hit, <clears throat> I was then the British guy and the only one who was kind of clean, open and honest. And I never had any issues about changing my name or trying to avoid tax or anything. So I was the one who basically went, okay, I'm still here. Everybody else got fired, all the Americans and Canadians, Australians, were all let go. And they asked me to become the chief marketing officer across the whole group of sporting bet. And even in that changeover year where we had to, the first act I did as CMO was basically sell all of our kind of businesses that had questionable legality. So the sportsbook.com business, the Super Bahis business in Turkey, we got rid of those immediately for $1 just to say we don't want anything to do with these, we won't profit from these businesses. And we're going into a clean, regulated future for sporting bet. Well, we managed to stabilize the share price in under a year. So I was really happy with that. 
I mean, all this experience under your belt, and this is not meant to be a leading question, but it may be controversial. What is it that bothers you the most about the industry these days? It's an interesting one. I think at the moment, and the thing that really led to the kind of build with Yieldsec is we've had a iGaming industry since the early 2000s. We hit a point, I think, in 2005 when UI, the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act, which I'll refer to that as UIGEA going forward. When UIGEA hit, I think that was almost like a hollow point bullet that kind of hit the body of iGaming. That lots of people kind of, the hollow point bullet, when it hits the body, it will kind of splinter into, and fragment into many different uh, shards and directions as it cuts through the body. It made a lot of people think, yes, we need to get legal. We need to be publicly traded and continue with that. We need to maximize shareholder value. So we're going to pull out of any illegal markets. Okay, US was clearly illegal from UIGA onwards. There were a number of other operators who weren't necessarily publicly traded at that point, who basically said, we're going to turn our face the other way and we're going to ignore the fact that U.S. legality has changed. And it wasn't just that U.S. legality had changed. It was that internationally, people noticed that this iGaming business throws off a ton of money, a ton of profitability, and we want control of this machine because governments prior to the internet always had control, and now they had none <clears throat> since the internet kind of inception in the mid-'90s. I'm at a point there where a lot of ex-colleagues, a lot of ex-team members, a lot of people I've trained over the years went into that dark side of the industry knowing they were going into it, but they thought, I'll be small enough, no one will notice me, and the Americans and justice won't come for me. And that's not just American justice. We've now seen that it's basically an international law is where this ends up. But effectively, they took a view that nothing was going to change, nobody was going to affect them, and they were making too much money to give up those ill-gotten gains. And I think that's the thing that concerned me the most over the years is you saw less capable, less able less talented people doing really well and making tons of money. Partly what led to me kind of getting to a point where I was, I was always successful working for other people or always able to make them money and always able to keep them on the right side of the law and say you can still make money, treat the customers the right way, treat them well, and they'll keep coming back to you. I got to a point where somebody said to me at a conference a few years before I started Yieldset that I'd given a speech about kind of where the industry was heading. And somebody said, after I'd given a speech, they patted me on the back and said, well, how does it feel being the smartest person in the industry still after all these years? And I laughed and said, I'm not the smartest by a long way. I just try and work hard. After a pause in the audience laughing, this guy then said, you're not the richest though, are you? Now, I never set out to be the richest, but I'm definitely not on paper the person who's got all the money here. <laughs> that bothered me to the extent of you can do things legally the right way and you can make money from it for yourself, your clients, your partners and the team that work with you. And that's kind of where Yieldset came from. Of Let's have a single source of truth of what legality means. Let's have a single source of truth for what the numbers are. Let's understand that in each ecosystem, there are two industries, a legal licensed regulated one that's taxpaying and contributing with onshore jobs. And there's an illegal one that does not care about anything other than producing as much money as possible from the lowest outlay possible. I wanted to try and change that, that in my lifetime and in my career, I want to fundamentally affect that piece. And yes, I want to make money for everybody who came with me and for those legal operators who should be making the money here, because that's what contributes to a safe, fair ecosystem going forward. It's what contributes to happy customers. It's what contributes to taxation and 
paying that quid pro quo to society, which means legal gambling only exists because society said we have a quid pro quo here. You keep this thing fair, safe, and reasonable, we'll let you have legal gambling. The point of legal gambling is to replace and get rid of criminality. And we're a far way, a, far, a long, long way from that today. And amen to that. We are truly honored to have the smartest and at the same time, arguably the bravest, one of the bravest <laughs> people in the industry on the show today. So thank you very much for that again. Talking of YieldSec, you've just pretty much set out its mission. Of course, I've nicked this of your website. So let me briefly read that mission statement. To deliver the world's first effective platform to help monitor police enforce and optimize the license market across online betting, gaming, and lottery activity. So what is the future of this mission? Where would you like to be? And I appreciate that this may sound like a rather silly HR question, but where would you like for YieldSec to be in 5, 10, 15 years from now? And by implication, where would you, li where would you like for the industry on the back of all that work to be? And that time. Very good question. So look, I'd like to see that we're in a period now where we just launched last August. We've had spectacular growth. We're working with a number of great companies, you know, some of the biggest companies in the industry. We need to work with more regulators and more governments. And we want to get to a position where we're understood as an independent, neutral third party. We don't have any investment from gaming companies. We don't have any <clears throat> on, on either side of this pro-gambling, anti-gambling debate. We don't really care where you want to set the line as, as an industry and an ecosystem and a group of legal stakeholders. For all the legal stakeholders, whether it's a health healthcare mission for the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, for example, whether it's the Betting and Gaming Council in the UK, whether it's an operator, tier one operator in the UK, or the Gambling Commission in the UK, or the Treasury Department, you're all legal stakeholders and we all need to supply you that information. That's what YieldSec exists for is, let's get this to a point where we finally fundamentally have a single source of truth across everything. Legal numbers, the illegal numbers, this is the ecosystem of what gambling generates in your jurisdiction. <clears throat> From there, it needs to have the adoption so that the YieldSec platform as we built and designed it, we built this from a, a military platform that was used for anti-terrorism and counterinsurgency. The reason I did that was it was the most scalable system I'd seen in terms of anything to do with terrorist content, anything to do with terrorist information online, finds it and it can kill it immediately. We're at the point where we don't kill that information, but we find it for everybody. For a legal stakeholder like the Gambling Commission or a media partner like Facebook, you now know that content's illegal, it can be removed. That content is leading to revenue, leaking from the country, being stolen from the country. We can now put that to a stop. And it's not just the destination websites, it's the mirrors, the clones, the advertising that leads to all of that. So I want to get to a point over the next few years where we're adopted by all of those individual legal stakeholders. We work for all of them. And we're there to basically show them that the only thing we're partisan about is legal versus illegal. That's the thing that we care about fundamentally. We are there for all legal stakeholders. We are there for no illegal stakeholders. So we get them to a point where this thing's been adopted. We get you to work together, even if you don't like one another and have diametrically opposed missions as legal stakeholder, operator versus a kind of anti-gambling charity. We want you to all get the same information to understand, look, legal gambling exists for a purpose here, to replace criminality. That's the point. When you can see that month on month, year on year, that the numbers are basically generating a sustainable, jurisdiction-friendly ecosystem that takes care of the vulnerable, 
takes care of excluding children, takes care of excluding customers like those on Gamstop in the UK, which we showed recently in, in our research in the United Kingdom. The illegal marketplace, the illegal operators are going after those Gamstop registered players to basically say all those pages on Google, all those pages on Facebook that refer to Gamstop, we're going to push you into illegal casinos and sportsbooks from that. We're going to push you into illegal payments. That shouldn't be happening. The, the Gamstop pages should be like anorexia and bulimia pages for women and young girls. That as soon as you try searching for that stuff, you push towards therapy. You push towards a helpline rather than pushed into illegal gambling. <laughs> so there's a better way of running these systems. And I'd like to see that over time, UNSEC works with all legal stakeholders, everybody from the operators through to the affiliates, through to the gambling manufacturers, through government, regulator, advertising platforms like Facebook and Google. And we're able then to show you that end-to-end platform benefit where YieldSec absolutely is able to work with all those legal stakeholders and affect the change that we know we can deliver now. That we're so far ahead of where I expected to be on the dev cycle because of using that military platform to build from. We're now able to go, okay, we can find a piece of content. We can find illegal affiliates. We can tell you exactly how to remove them. So we act on a recommendation basis that it's all big data on our side, but how we work with the clients is to make sure you as legal stakeholders do not need a big data front end to log into and therefore troll for what you need to do. We understand the ecosystem well enough to be able to say to people, these are the top 10 threats for you this month. These are the things you need to focus on. Next month, it's the World Cup, it's the Premier League, it's the FA Cup final. These are the things you need to focus on. These are how the keyword bidding is changing. This is how PPC has been affected. This is how the URL and domains and blacklists are going to be affected. So we're the first thing that's basically able to keep up in real time with how that illegal operator moves and how they have, on average, globally now, we've established that each illegal website has around 3,000 mirrors and clones behind it. We don't do anything like that for legal websites to maintain our kind of appeal, to maintain our keyword dominance, to maintain our search dominance and our social media presence. So there's a bunch of lessons we also learn from the legal marketplace about how do you increase the relevance and authority for legal operators, period, to make sure that they're always the first results you'll see rather than sometimes the second to last. Clearly an extremely useful tool, and we shall continue rooting for it in a similar vein. You've touched quite a bit on the UK, and for good reason. Similarly, in the United States, and I genuinely do need to stop using this phrase, but sports betting has taken the US by the storm, and the legalization of the avalanche doesn't really seem to be showing much of a sign of abating at the same time with 30 plus states that have regulated it's the trend of late i hope you will agree that the markets have somewhat settled and the legislators and regulators have little more time on their hands to ponder the more granular issues such as the one at the heart of yield sec namely the remnants of the black market and how we can drive that out so, in your view, what is the most efficient way of going about it in the United States? And, of course, feel free to use New York as, in my view, the most pertinent example. Great question, Martin. Look, I think, again, the U.S. is, is I'd probably, 
there's a way of tell, telling the story. I'd say it's a tale of two states, California and New York. Those are the two to really focus on. So New York, you've got an imperfect picture where you've only licensed sports betting. You have a 51% tax rate on stakes, which makes it almost impossible for anybody to make money. And the people who are there now are there for the long-term mission kind of thing. There's also rumors about there may be an advertising ban coming in for those legal operators. And what you're seeing in California is the opposite of that, where we don't have anything legalized. They asked the citizens in the 2022 midterms, and basically the answer was, well, if you're legalizing this, and even that, the coming down to the vocabulary, is slightly off. If you ask people to legalize something, they think it's brand new. This thing just got invented. And now you're asking me if we should give it legal status. Well, I don't like the idea of it. No, is the answer. And that's what most populations will come back and say, because a population doesn't just include online gamblers. So California is sitting on its hands. You've got some internal issues about, well, we don't want to offend the tribes and we don't want to offend the existing card rooms. They need to come with that mission, the same way that they have in Arkansas and states like that. They should be given preferences over, well, you get to have the first online licenses. You can work with partners like Entain from abroad, et cetera. But there needs to be something there that's done to understand this thing has been here for years. It's going to be here for the future. You either get control of it now, but please don't rest back and do what New York's done and a number of other states. You've stopped licensing, effectively. You've stopped giving out new licensing for all of online gaming. You've just taken care of sports betting in a weird way with this really high tax rate that's retained the existing black market that used to be there. They're now the legacy black market, and they're still getting the majority of the business. From the research we've already done in New York recently, it's a very similar picture to what's going on in Germany, for example. Germans did nothing about cleaning up the marketplace, the same as New York. You just announced legalization, and therefore you brought in the new rules. Here's licensing, here's a bunch of brands. If you do that without any notification of these brands are illegal, these brands are at risk for you as a customer, they're risking your account balance as well. The money you have with them, you should probably take it out. If a government did that anywhere, a state level or a national level, if they started going in on the basis of create the run on the bank, create the idea with, with citizens that if you've got money with XYZ's websites, you're going to lose that money because we're going to go after these people and we're going to go after the head of the snake, go after some of the biggest brands who are illegal and still operating here. If you just told customers their money was at risk, they'd be pulling that cash out very quickly. You'd probably find lots of those sites closing down. That run on the bank scenario, if you look at what happened with FTX, for example, FTX also being a crypto platform, but also a sports betting platform in a way because they had games called predictors. So the collapse of FTX wasn't just a gambling, a crypto collapse. It was also a gambling company collapse in some ways. There needs to be a position here where you're going after those companies and making sure that you're identifying them clearly, saying what they're making, which you can work out with us at YieldSec, and you're going after them to say, we don't want your presence in this state, in this nation. We want you out of our jurisdiction, and we want you potentially to come to the table and sit down with us for reparations for what you did in the past. It's not about having to criminalize and, and break down every single illegal gambling company. You only need to, as a jurisdiction, go after one to set the example that makes all the rats run. As soon as you've taken out one of these illegal companies, many others will be at the table saying, we want to talk about reparations. We don't want to go to jail forever. So lots of people will be getting in line trying to mend their relationships once you've made an example of one. And there are a few brands globally, I won't name them today, there are a few brands globally that could be top of that list and everybody knows what they are. Well, absolutely. Uh, New York and Germany, very interesting combo. It actually might be all down to me, because believe you me, I spent 
countless sleepless nights and a lot of late nighters trying to bear down the German legislators and regulators to finally issue that ever-elusive list on unlicensed operators that face Germany. And these days I live across the river from the New York City. So if it is me, then I apologize to the whole industry. But hand in hand, and we are hitting the home straight of this podcast. It's a podcast about responsible gambling. And of course, I'm delighted to report that in the United States and elsewhere, but let's focus on the United States. A lot of regulators led by New Jersey, Colorado, of course, Ohio, Massachusetts, uh, if you pardon the pun in the home straight of their own, have put and laid even more emphasis on responsible gambling. So with your experience with all vagaries associated with the black market, where do you believe the whole consumer protection piece but their focus on responsible gambling is headed in the United States these days? So, great question again. We're definitely heading for more and more RG. We're definitely heading for more and more jurisdictions who feel that they have access as regulators and governments to amending the gambling machine. Now, that's slightly dangerous in that nobody understands the gambling machine as well as the gambling industry does, the legal gambling industry. The illegal industry understands how they can make money from it, especially when regulators and governments who maybe don't know what they're doing when they start instituting changes. Now, to use another example from Germany, Germany introduced a 10-second spin delay on slot machine play. So when you press play on a slot machine on Gonzo's Quest, it waits 10 seconds and then spins. No education about this, no public awareness, nothing, no advertising whatsoever. Customers were told on forums and on platforms like Instagram and Twitter that those machines were rigged. They were fixed. That's why the delay was taking place. So all of a sudden, within a couple of weeks of this taking place in Germany, all legal slot machine sites, sales started going through the floor. And illegal slot machine sites, sales started going through the roof because people started looking for no spin delay slots. And that became one of the strongest keyword search terms in Germany. So people were told this fake news disinformation rumor that you need to, you know, those delays is because they're rigging the machines. And also because of the tax rate, you're finding that slot machine payouts are running at around 95, 96%, whereas the illegal marketplace can run at 98.9%, kind of RTP to players. So because of the ability to make more money through more business coming in, you can afford to give more money back to customers too in the illegal side. Where responsible gaming needs to come from here is an understanding that, yes, there's going to be responsible gaming rules brought in. We as a legal industry fully embrace that and expect that to happen, but there has to be coordination and dialogue between government, regulator, industry, and other self-help bodies and kind of the people who want to do good with the gambling ecosystem but they don't necessarily understand all of the dynamics that work in that place. So you need to understand holistically, talk to somebody like us at YieldSec to tell you when you start changing this dynamic, these are the impacts you can expect. This is what we see globally. And this is that one blowback piece that you do not want to happen. Because when you introduce something like that spin delay, it led to wholesale movement towards the black market by customers because they saw the legal market as unfair. The legal market is potentially cheating them. And that's the, 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 the kind of blowback effect of the government not understanding. You introduce a 10-second spin delay. If you don't educate people, like you did with the wearing of safety belts in cars, for example, if you don't tell them why 
they'll assume it's something that's taking away their fun, taking away their benefit, taking away their self-interest. And that's something that does not work well when you introduce RG rules in a vacuum in, in the online gaming space. Absolutely, and sadly so. Some of these regulatory requirements tend to defy logic, but I'm sure that uh, with guys like you being around, we will continue working with regulators and legislators and, and educating them and the same goal for the public. Before I give Esmail a chance to shine even more, my usual rather unfair question and request 60 seconds to convey his key messages, we tend to talk on these podcasts about other walks of life and slightly lighter stuff than responsible gambling and, and black markets. We've heard, and thanks for that, we've heard about your background. So if you pardon the pun, the question of sport. So given your background, would I be right in guessing that you, you, you're bound to be a football as in soccer, not football, cricket and rugby fan. And if that's the case, do you get excited about American sports or will you be getting excited about March Madness or will that just wash over you? It's a very good question. I, the only British sport I'm really keen on is soccer. I couldn't care less about rugby and cricket whatsoever. In terms of my upbringing, I read a lot of comic books and watched a lot of American movies. America is my spiritual home. I love America. More than I, I think I do most people, to be honest. <laughs> the idea of America in my heart and my head is somewhere that that's God's own country to me. At, on, at a physical level, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. At a, at a people level, I've met some of the best, most forward-thinking and new ideas celebrating people in the United States than I have anywhere else in the world. So American sports, basketball in particular, I absolutely love. I'm very much looking forward to March Madness. Now is the time, before we move on in the real life, I mean, onto the NBA playoffs. Now you got your 60 seconds, please, to convey your key messages before we wrap up. So it's all yours. Thank you very much. So key messages I'd say here is YieldSec exists for all legal stakeholders. It's to get us to a balanced ecosystem that works for everybody, that there's something in this ecosystem for everyone. The whole point of, of YieldSec that we came in with is that we're helping you understand what the legal marketplace should look like and what your jurisdictional marketplace could look like without crime being present. The point for us is that betting, gaming and lottery should fundamentally benefit our commerce, our community, onshore jobs, and the, the citizens and, and children within that community. Betting, gaming, and lottery should not be funding crime. And that's fundamentally a reason why you should have a chat with us at Yelsec. Thank you very much for that. Thanks again for Thank being you. on the show, ladies and gentlemen. This has been one of the industry pioneers, and as we've established today, one of the smartest and bravest people in the gambling industry, Mr. Esmal Valley. My name is Martin Lechka. This has been the latest episode of the Safe Bet Show. Thanks for watching us. Take good care and see you next time.